Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm John Stewart, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 40 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. Again, with the amazing hand gestures. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please support. I'm going to keep this one short this week because I just listened to my last episode. And first of all, I actually sound like I know what I'm doing, which is kind of scary. But second of all, I gave you a bit of a long uh, upfront there because the truth is, uh, you know, uh, finances for this program are dire. So I do need your support, but I'm going to keep it quick. Patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Try it free for seven days. Sign up for as little as $5 a month. Supports everything I do, including this podcast. YouTube.com slash at music is not a genre is where, if you're just listening, you get to see all these videos for free. Subscribe, share, and like. Comment. Please comment. And you get a whole bunch of other more. There are over 600 videos on YouTube.com slash at music is not a genre. And uh, nickdematio.com is where you get everything else. Sign up, go to contact, sign up for my free newsletter. Also go to shop where you can get uh, 20% off t-shirts right now, summer 2320, summer 2320. Uh, and real soon I'm going to be adding mugs. You get some discounts for that too coming up. And finally, please listen to and support my band, Rec, R-E-C, at recarea.bandcamp.com. I think that's about as short as I can make it. Uh, let's get to the topic this week. It's it's kind of monumental, and, and then in some ways it's not. There's a bit of a surprise at the end. The topic is The Beatles Part 6, Separating the Sun. So, some an overview, disclaimer, little citation here, okay? You know, you kind of know how these Beatles episodes go, but this is a special one because this starts in 1970. It starts after they broke up and talks about the world post-Beatles, what they did, what other artists did, etc., etc., and what the Beatles as an organization did. So that's kind of where the, the structure of this is. And as I was putting it together, uh, I discovered a couple of things, which I'm going to discuss uh, as I get towards the bottom and why this is uh, a bit of a surprise episode here. Part six of my six-part series, if that gives you any hint, uh, as far as their actual breakup, I talked about a little bit in, in part five. I, I don't need to really go into the details. People have hashed and rehashed that over and over. I think you should watch Get Back, the TV special. 
I think you should do as much reading as you possibly can. And I think you should go and watch part five. It's in the playlist that I made for uh, MXG Beatles episodes. And that gives you an idea of what happened as far as the breakup. I don't need to go over that. I'm also not going to be mentioning movies and books and all of those things, except in passing, because I did an episode about uh, the Beatles books and included in there other media like movies and television and all of that. And that's also in the Beatles playlist on YouTube.com slash at music is not a genre. So I don't need to really redo all of that. And uh, like I said, there's going to be a surprise here uh, or two towards the end, which I'll get to. And just a special, I don't do this often because I have a pretty general way of researching things and I put things in my own words, etc. But I do want to give a shout out to a few sites here. Always Wikipedia, primarily for its organization more than anything else. It's a great jumping off point where you can then go to other sites and verify what you're reading there, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, UltimateClassicRock.com and FarOutMagazine.co.uk were two sites I went to to go for the Beatles solo albums, rankings and reviews and kind of general description. And thank you to both of those because they were a big help. So let's start with the first part. Or is this the second? Or is the third part of this episode? I don't know. It depends if you think prefaces are parts. The post-Beatles Beatle history, right? So the immediate aftermath of their breakup was filled with uh, rushes to continue recording and performing by all of them, which resulted in some classic albums and songs, as we know, and I'm going to go over a a few of those, or most or all of them, I guess, uh, through this episode. But there were also a lot of lawsuits, Alan Klein and all that crap, figuring out how to continue making money as as a Beatle, as the entity, the Beatles, without actually being together anymore, making money on their catalog, how to run and and honestly how to utilize Apple Records, because that's something that they did have some passion for when they started, but that passion seemed to have just progressively waned as it went along. And I'll talk a little bit about that. By 1973 or so, things started to settle into a post-Beatles world. People were pretty much had, had accepted the fact that they were broken up. Um, they might have started to talk about rumors of a reunion and all of that, but that wasn't really primary in anybody's mind. There were very few people as far as the uh, general population goes. That also marked the release of uh, Red and Blue albums which is 1962, 66, and 67 to 70. I'll talk about a little bit later, which were kind of banner albums to say, well, it's not that compilations hadn't been released before, even while the Beatles Beatles were together, but these were pretty significant uh, for a couple of reasons. There were some misdirects uh, from a band. I talked about this in another episode, a band like Klaatu, uh, from, I believe, from Canada, Uh, Formed in 1973, and people for a little while thought that they were secretly the Beatles getting back together and recording under an assumed name. Not true. And listening back, it's hard to understand why people thought that. Uh, Then you have things like the Ruddles, Eric Idle, and and, and some other people, uh, 1975 and beyond, uh, which was sort of a parody send-up of the Beatles, but lovingly done. Uh, there was rumors of a reunion, uh, probably all throughout, but certainly in 76 when Lauren Michaels on SNL said, hey, I'll give you, was it $300? I forget what it was, some ridiculously small amount of money. And Paul and John actually considered going down and doing that because they were in New York. 
And then just a few months later, George actually did appear on SNL with Paul Simon. Uh, there was the Bee Gees uh, movie, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1978 with those covers and everything. And it's kitschy fun. I talked about that in that episode I mentioned earlier. Beatlemania, the, the show, the Broadway show in 1977, which became a full-on touring band in 1980, which spawned a bunch of other Beatles impersonators and Beatles bands in general. You have the guys from Late Night with David Letterman. I forget the dude's name, Will, something who do Beatles, but without the costumes. That's kind of like what our band Prefab 4 does. And now, more than ever, there I mean, there are probably more Beatles cover bands than there ever have been. And I'll talk about that sort of ebb and flow, but it all really started in earnest in the late 70s, early 80s. What's interesting about this period, too, is that the world had kind of moved on. You know, the, the music had, had begun to move on. And, and even though there were a lot of bands and artists who were still being influenced by the Beatles, there was maybe not a full-on backlash, but this was in many ways, the from let's say the mid-70s to the early mid-80s, was their least popular era. And nobody really knew what to do with them uh, as far as how to put them in the context of history. You know, history... Uh, it's it's like trying to define what the 2010s are. A little too soon to figure that out, you know. And they, so they couldn't quite figure that out. Uh, the Beatles, the Beatles themselves, didn't want to rehash the past. Uh, as you know, they were often pretty vigorously anti-talking about the past in one way or another, or talked about it in in uh, cryptic or negative terms. Uh, some artists and fans, again, will continue to be obsessed with and influenced by them, uh, you know, but it, this, let's, I'm going to use this word. I know I use it, but I love it. I'm going to use it anyway. The zeitgeist was not with the Beatles at this time. As far as the Beatles themselves, they were releasing their albums. I'm going to go over their solo careers, more or less, hint, hint. Uh, and they did other things like collaborations with artists, uh, uh, David Bowie, Elton John, uh, John Lennon did that. Um, Later on in the 80s, you had Paul McCartney doing things with Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson. And even later than that, you have uh, George Harrison forming Traveling Wilburys with that amazing cast of uh, musicians. And then a little even later than that, Ringo's All-Star Band uh, thing kind of kicked in. I think that's, I'm going to say that's when he got sober. And it's also when he redirected his career after taking a hiatus from releasing albums. Uh, of course, you've got, you know, John's death in 1980. I talked about that in my Death is Dumb episode on John Lennon, which is also included in the playlist. So this six-part playlist is quite a bit longer than six parts. Uh, and then you get to the 1980s and you start to see a resurgence of interest in the Beatles, especially after people had taken time to uh, absorb John's death and realize that the reunion we were all hoping for would never, ever occur. And artists started coming out paying homage to them either by doing covers or by their their music sounding more like the Beatles. They weren't they weren't considered enough time had passed where they weren't considered passe anymore, but they were considered retro in a lot of ways. And if you lived through the eighties, you know that there was a lot of sixties retro in general. Uh, so bands started reintegrating their influence more directly. And in fact, I contend that any not any. But let's say Western bands or, or even beyond that, bands post-Beatles who had any knowledge of popular culture somehow integrated 
the Beatles, whether that was directly and overtly or indirectly through certain ways they uh, styled their music, how they produced it, their, their approach to music and songwriting and lyrics and all of that, their aesthetic, or by deliberately negating the influences. A reaction against something still is still taking that thing into account. So you had the punk movement or say, eh, you know, the, the, let's get rid of all the old guard. And at the same time, uh, a lot of the punks and, you know, the Ramones in particular who got their name from uh, McCartney's uh, fake name when he would check into a hotel. That's where they got the Ramones from. Uh, and beyond punk, even grunge bands and all, some of them uh, and heavy metal had a s- secret or not so secret love of the Beatles and incorporated some of their techniques into what they did. It didn't sound that way. Okay, and uh, later on, I'll talk about some of the the more obvious and less obvious Beatles offshoots and people who were influenced by the Beatles, or will I? I don't know. But you have to wait and see. That's one of the surprises. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So by the mid-1980s, if not sooner... You started to hear bands reincorporate the Beatles aesthetic, uh, like the Tears for Fears type thing, like sowing the seeds of love. It's just, I mean, that just sounds like the Beatles, right? Uh, then you had, in Britain, you had the Manchester or Madchester sound with Happy Monday, Stone Roses, etc. Peaking a few years later with Oasis. These were all 
you know, more than just a, you know, Beatles influenced them, but the Beatles did influence them. And that would include the solo Beatles themselves started reincorporating Beatles-esque type things towards the late 80s, at least. Uh, even though, you know, Paul had done that uh, to some, you know, degree here and there in the 70s, even especially when he uh, worked with George Martin very sporadically. Uh, but in the 80s, it's really cloud nine, George Harrison, that that jumped straight back into that kind of Beatles nostalgia from the Beatles themselves. And let's not forget, and I want to say this is 1984, Julian Lennon was actually a pretty huge thing for a very short time. He had two big hits, Velot and Too Late for Goodbyes. You know, and, and I do want to spend more time on uh, Beatles' progeny, the uh, offspring, uh, later on to just talk about the different, you know, what the different kids did, and especially the ones who are into music. Or will I? I don't know. You'll have to wait and see. Which brings us to the 90s. Uh, the Beatles were hugely back in vogue and would have a decade-plus run of hugeness. And I mean... Beyond that, I'll talk about what happened after that. But but as far as like the mounting, just growing love and respect and admiration and and ubiquity of the Beatles, it really started in in an area, let's say ninety four, but especially ninety five and ninety six when the anthologies were released. Boom, right here. When I go over the brief list of uh, notable Beatle band releases post Beatles, I'll go over those. Uh, two new songs included in those anthologies. Uh, the one, the one, the one was all number ones in the U.S. and U.K. Uh, was in 2000. Let it be naked was in 03. Love in 06, which was the music from the Cirque du Soleil show, which culminated in the Beatles rock band video game. And they're related because it was Giles in particular and George a little bit breaking down the tracks and and making sure they were pristine and separating them so that you could you know hear all the parts and do and repurpose them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And my kids were hugely into uh, Beatles rock band video game. It was kind of fun to relive some of that in that way. Uh, of course, wedged in there in this period of, of rapid growth and popularity, Linda McCartney's death in 98, George's death in 2001. And then let's just shout out uh, the most recent, I think, significant death, although there have been a couple of others, George Martin's death in 2016. Uh, in the twenty. 20- Tens as you pass by this huge period of growth, which let's say, like I said, went from like 95 to 09, you started to get kind of weird reimaginings. Uh, perfect example, uh, Richard Linklater's film that was shot over a 12-year period, Boyhood. There was a playlist associated with one of the characters in that film of what would the Beatles albums have sounded like if they stayed together. And uh, this was like 2014. So they put together actual playlists of, well, their first album would have been X and and it featured songs from their solo albums, but put together in a way that made it seem like a Beatles album. And I can't remember how many albums they did. I want to look that up again. And then a little later in 2019, you had the movie Yesterday, which is, you know, what if the world, you know, something happened and the Beatles never existed and how would their music still influence the world and, and all of that. And of course, the legacy continues today with just more books and movies and TV shows like Get Back. At this point, which is why I say they had a rapid growth. They're now, they're just beyond like, dislike, popular, unpopular, except on a personal level, of course. But as far as the world goes, they've gone beyond that. They're now just legends like Bach and Beethoven and, you know, you name all the jazz artists that we consider legends and some others. 
Uh, I'm reading a book now whose author I'm going to interview in a few weeks, and it's on the mamas and the papas. And it really chronicles that period of when rock and roll wasn't considered a legit thing and then all of a sudden became as artistically revered as other kinds of music. It wasn't all of a sudden. It was over maybe a 20-year period. But, uh, you know, following... And the Beatles had a, a lot to do with that. And then following that, it's been decades and decades of each kind of that music, including rock and hip hop, being considered as worthy as any other kind. So post Beatles releases, uh, Beatles releases in particular, the significant ones, and there may be others in comment if I've missed one. Again, in 1973, the Red and Blue albums were released. Red Chronicles uh, hits from 62 to 66 and Blue from 67 to 70. And... The second one, 67 to 70, is likely the reason anybody beyond a huge Beatles fan knows the song Old Brown Shoe. The only reason I ever knew Old Brown Shoe was because of that compilation. Our band does it, and it actually kicks ass live. People like to dance to it. But there was something about, I forget why it was included. I may have mentioned this in another episode, but you, you can look it up. There's a reason why that one in particular was included. And uh, I love that it was, you know, it just, those, those red and blue albums are more interesting than you think. And the cover art is, is very cool to cover photos. There were lots of lesser known compilations in the 1970s that I'm not really going to mention, but a lot actually. 1982 to mark the 20th anniversary of their first recording, Love Me Do, they, they released 20 greatest hits, which I don't know anything about. I didn't have that. In 87, 88 is when the Beatles organization, the Beatles themselves, decided to standardize their releases. So instead of having 12 UK albums and 13 US albums, they said, these are the 13 albums worldwide. Now they're going to be standardized. And that was spurred by, you know, them wanting to transfer all of them to CD and sell them that way, which is also when they released the box set, which I didn't have room to put here. I've showed you before. Uh, in 88, uh, which included Past Masters, which was two volumes of non-album songs, all the non-album you know, non singles and maybe some other things. And that was really the kickoff of all the standardization of that. And now what we consider the Beatles' oeuvre catalog is really stemmed from that period on. So it's been about 35 years of that kind of a world. And... Uh, I'll talk about, you know, in order, like I said, they actually did release that box set in 1988, the black, the black rectangular one, which surprised me because I didn't get it till 09. So I didn't know. And I know that one was like mono, one was stereo or something, but nevertheless, uh, I wasn't aware of it in 88 or if I was, I couldn't afford it. Maybe I don't know. Uh, in 94, they released live at the BBC. So this is where I am going to pop in here. Well, hello, past masters. For those of you just listening, I'm showing you the quite boring, uh, decent photo here, but that's the the two-disc Past Masters from my collection. Oh, boy. Where do I put these? Floor. And uh, this is the just one I thought was interesting to... Oh, this is the one. Beatles Live at the BBC, which was released in 94, which, which was remastered stuff from, yes, their live shows. You know, the BBC, and it just reminded everybody who had forgotten how great they were live because they don't often get that credit because of all the crap they had to go through to play live. And then, of course, these three boom anthologies 
I just sucked these in probably more than any college course I'd ever taken and most, you know, bands and albums and artists. I There are still things from these anthologies that I hear in my head, even though I haven't heard them in a while. And I often tell my bandmates, like, perfect example. The Our leader always mentions or frequently mentions that when one of our guys sings Can't Buy Me Love, it was their first song where there was only one singer. No harmonies, whatever. But there's a version of Can't Buy Me Love on the anthologies that has harmonies. I'm like, one day we should learn that and do that just to mess with people and have some fun. The backbeat to Strawberry Fields is insanely amazing. Um, the, all the different alt takes have got to get you into my life and see the development of that. And of course, the two new songs, Real Love and Free as a Bird, which were, you know, wonderful to hear, but so-so in terms of the production because they didn't have the technology at the time to clean up John's recordings the way they do now. And I'll talk about a little bit about that when I get towards the end of this list. And then you have... Something I just threw this in. This is uh, Rare Photos and Interview CD. Just to just to show you how ubiquitous they were coming and how they really were mining their back catalog and enhancing it in ways and releasing things that hadn't been released before, like the stuff from the anthologies. And that was one example of that, not necessarily significant. I mentioned Let It Be Naked in the last episode. That was in 2003. Uh, the album Love, 2006, which I just talked about. It was the Cirque du Soleil music. And rock band, and like I said, in 2009, to for them to have gone through and separated the tracks in that way, and for us to be able to hear each separate track, the bass, the guitar, a vocal here and that, you know, and then because you were on that video game, oh, I want to play the guitar on this, so they had to take that out, was absolutely amazing. It felt like you were inside the music more than like ever, ever before, unless you're actually playing with a band on stage, you know. Uh, again, the deluxe box set re-release, the big black rectangular thing in stereo in 2009, which is when I purchased my copy. And then all the solo album deluxe re-releases, starting with the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 2017, and they've done several since then. I have a few. I don't have them all. Got to pay the bills, you know. And uh, then, and, and interestingly, there, there have certainly been more releases than that, uh, but the fact that Paul just announced as of this recording is releasing the, apparently, what he's calling the last new Beatles song ever, because he's using some of John's old recordings, which we believe one of the rejected recordings from the anthologies when they were putting Real Love and Free as a Bird together. My hope is that the same people who do this new song with Paul also do different versions of Real Love and Free as a Bird and make them sound more like the four of them are integrated uh, since, you know, John really did sound a bit ghostly on those previous versions. Speaking of John, I'm going to get to this right now. Time to go through their solo careers, more or less. And as I don't want this to be three hours long, uh, you'll you'll get to see where this is going as I pass through some of these guys. I'm doing them in order of total number of studio albums released. I'm not talking about live and compilations and all that stuff. So we're going to start with John, who of course had the shortest career, uh, but but nevertheless still was able to release 11 albums in a 12-year period. Well, it really spanned to a 16-year period because it was a posthumous release, but as far as his lifetime. So 10 
albums in his lifetime, starting, no, not in 1970, but in 1968. I like to characterize each of their solo careers because I think being reductive is so smart. It tells the whole story. Well, no, it's fun is what it is. Obviously, there's more nuance to all of what they did, but I, you know, want to kind of give my take on how I saw their solo careers. John's was full of inner exploration, raw emotion, politics, deliberately stripped down, uh, you know, which was interesting because that stripped down contrasted with his very crippling self-consciousness of his voice. So he would double his vocals and wash and reverb really more obscured than they needed to be. You can feel and hear the turmoil in the music and in the person through pretty much all of his music, at least through 75. And, uh, you know, why I stopped there is because in 1980, when he released Double Fantasy is when he was entering into a more kind of, if if not life settled, temporarily settled phase uh, with having spent so much time at home with Sean, etc., and a more kind of out and and ebullient phase and welcoming phase. And I think he was more on his way to realizing his full potential as a solo artist than in any of his previous work, as much as we revere his, like, you know, early 70s albums. I think more things would have come in the 80s that would have blown us away. This is just his discography. Uh, I'm just going to knock through the first three because they're of a piece. Unfinished Music One, Number One, Two Virgins, uh, 1968. Unfinished Music Number Two, Life with the Lions in '69, and Wedding Album 1969. We're all done with Yoko, and that they are they're a trilogy of experimental noise rock albums. Interesting to listen to, uh, just to get a sense of what he was doing and they were doing at the time. But nothing, you're not going to want to put it on repeat. And I think the reason he did this because he was still in the Beatles at the time. So he said, I don't need to do regular music. I can do that with my band. Why don't I do something experimental? And then you had the first uh, release, you know, after the band, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band in 1970. Very raw. Uh, Mother, working class hero, isolation. Honestly, uh, people often rank this as their favorite. John Lennon or the best John Lennon solo album. And I understand why. The following year, Imagine in 1971. These were all on Apple Records, by the way. Uh, the title track, Crippled Inside, Jealous Guy, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier, Give Me Some Truth, Oh My Love, How Do You Sleep, Oh Yoko. And again, I'm going to say this, and I've said this in several episodes. If you take issue with Yoko in the way that many uh, revisionists and misogynists do, you can shut this off now. Just just go ahead. And if not, keep keep listening. I actually rank Imagine as his best album. I mean, that list of songs right there. It had a nice combination of rawness and polish. And I know in a way he didn't like the polish that much, but I think that was kind of a sweet spot, very early sweet spot for him. Uh, the following year in 72, again with Yoko, you had Some Time in New York City, which was a double album of recorded and live music. It was very political and we had mixed reviews. Uh, Woman is the N-Word of the World was a very well-known song. Sunday, Bloody Sunday, a song he had nothing to do with the U2 album, was written several years before U2's version. I thought that was of interest. The following year, Mind Games in 1973, also Apple title track. Excellent. And 
this was a period where he was in probably some of the most turmoil you know ever. And I believe that like his his solo uh, songs, I mean, Cold Turkey and which came out earlier, and other songs you know like that, and the and the collaborations at this point were better than his albums even. Walls and Bridges, uh, 1974. There you go. Whatever gets you through the night, which was his first number one solo song. And I love that song. I love that one. It's probably one, two with Cold Turkey as far as cool, you know, solo releases. Number nine, Dream. Great. And they considered Walls and Bridges a bit of a comeback after uh, Mind Games and, and sometime in New York City because neither of them did as well as Imagine or the Plastic Ono Band. And he follows it up with, I think it was a Phil Spector produced just reverb fest rock and roll in 75. Apple, the last Apple, uh, you know, as far as he goes, release. Stand By Me is the one people always point out as being a good cover. But it's a cover of old rock and roll songs, something near and dear to his heart. And I love that he picked them and they were interesting picks. I honestly just wish, wish it was produced differently. Because I don't think it does justice to the songs or to Lennon. Uh, and then the huge break, figuring things out, settling down into life. You know, Sean and Yoko and all of that. New York City. Hearing uh, one of uh, Paul's releases in 79 or 80 and realizing, oh, I want to get back in the game. I think I'm ready now. And gets all this material out and starts recording a couple of albums worth, the first one of which was uh, 1980s Double Fantasy with Yoko also contributing. And this is really the second ranked album for me uh, behind Imagine, I think. And you had songs like Starting Over, I'm Losing You, Beautiful Boy Watching the Wheels, and so many others. And then you you also had a song by... uh, Yoko, Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. It wasn't her only song on there, but it was, I believe, the B-side starting over. And it was, I believe, the song that inspired the B-52s to create Rock Lobster. And is, again, you know, I've listened through to her catalog and it's wildly varying and in many ways underrated because of the stigma she has. This is a perfect example of a song that was kind of post-punk, post-disco, weird but concise. It's something worth listening to. Don't overlook it. And then, of course, he dies, and there's material left over, and it took a few years to put it all together. Uh, And you get an album in 84, a big year for the Beatles, because Julian was out then too, uh, called Milk and Honey. And so let me me go through some of these. Well, actually, yeah, so Double Fantasy here. Okay. And Milk and Honey, they deliberately, you know, a similar cover, but in color. And they were like, yeah, this is, you know, just a continuation of what he was doing, Double Fantasy. And an album, and I think this ranks maybe third for me, or maybe fourth, but definitely in the top three or four. Uh, It's underrated. If you haven't heard it, there's some great songs on here. I always loved, and I think this was kind of a hit at the time when it came out, one of the two hits, Nobody Told Me. Nobody told me there'd be days like these. And I'm Stepping Out was a very cool one. I think it was a minor hit. And then you have the perennial Grow Old With Me, which a lot of people have covered and people have, you know, weddings and stuff like that. Uh, Look up Milk and Honey. It's worth it. Uh, Which brings me to the next uh, person. Oh, let me just go through, uh, what was this, one more. 
This is the John Lennon collection that I have, which I think is where I started before I got some of the other albums. I had heard things when I was a kid, but I didn't go out and buy it all. This is pre-streaming. I tend to start with greatest hits for people. I'm not sure I want to delve into them. And that was the same case here with John. Um, partly because I've always, I always had kind of a side eye for his solo work because of the inconsistent release schedule and, and inconsistency of purpose and stuff like that. Uh, that's, that was just obviously just my opinion, but that brings me to George. So George released 12 albums and this is just the beginning of some rancor that I just, that I'm going to let out and it's going to happen. You know, this is a troubled person, possibly in some ways more troubled than John. And the fact that he lived, uh, well, now I have to do math, like 30 years after the Beatles broke up, 31 years, whatever, and released only 12 studio albums just shows the, you know, not, I won't say waywardness, but just the, the issues that he was having, whether it had to do with him focusing on the music and, and giving it its proper space because he was busy with other things or personal issues or the press and, you know, the population not digging everything he was doing. Uh, I think there was a lot of bitterness in him. I think he was constantly struggling for inner peace and love, and that's a that's a struggle we all go through one way or another. It was a very open struggle for him, which I do respect the openness. I think a lot of what he did was backward looking. There was, you know, uh, maybe some difficulty letting go of the past. You know, his his uh, autobiography that he released after, you know, wrote before, but I think released after Lennon had died just, you know, is can be acerbic at times. Uh, I think that overall he was somebody whose who's, uh, songwriting brilliance was never fully fleshed out. There were, you could probably mention 20 songs that were just amazing, amazing and legendary. And that's something that any of us should, you know, respect and be jealous of if you're a creator. And at the same time, this is somebody who could have had 80 songs that were revered. But I I think that, you know, and I'll talk about this later when I go into my conclusions, it was easier for him to focus when he had direct uh, impetus and support and competition from, from, you know, the Beatles bandmates. So his discography, again, didn't start in 1970, started also in 1968, and you get... Wonderwall music, which was actually the first ever Beatles solo album, even before John Lennon's album. It was soundtrack to the film Wonderwall. And of course, where Oasis got the name of their song, Deep Cut. I don't think I knew it at the time when that song came out. So good on them. 1969, he releases an experimental album, Enamored with the Moog Synthesizer, which, I mean, so many people were, including McCartney and, oh, the bands that used that. I love that sound and where it went after that. Relatively new at the time. It was an album called Electronic Sound in 1969, and it's just track on side A, it was 18, 20 minutes, whatever, track on side B, also of a similar length. Experimental. I have not heard it. I'm curious to hear it. Uh, if you've heard it, let me know what you think of it. Which brings us to likely the best 
first Beatles solo album post Beatles or really even pre. And that is All Things Must Pass in 1970. And not only is it the, the best, it's the triple album. An absolute magnum opus to somebody who, we said this before, bursting to get a lot of things out that he didn't have the space to get out in the Beatles. And I'll just list some of the good songs. My Sweet Lord. I'm not talking about that lawsuit. If you haven't heard about it, look it up. Wah Wah, Isn't It a Pity? I love What Is Life was my fave as a kid. I loved that song. If Not For You is a great Dylan cover. Didn't know it was Dylan until, you know, I got older. Beware of Darkness, beautiful. And All Things Must Pass, beautiful. And so many others that I'm like apple scrubs and all. Just so many things that I'm completely forgetting and absolutely worth listening to front to back, to back, to front, to front, to back. Because it's a triple album. And that must have exhausted him because it took three years from the release of another album. 1973, he released Living in the Material World, which was another critical hit and had some hits. Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth, you know, was it. And it was both very religious and very political. This was when he was doing like Concert for Bangladesh and all of those other things. And just, I think this showed, A, that he still had a lot of good in him and, and B, this was sort of the end of that initial run of great stuff. And C, part of it was because he had so many interests that it divided his attention, you know, which did again happen. It happened with uh, John as well in a different way and didn't really happen with Paul, um, which is interesting. The year later, you have Dark Horse, 1974. Uh, And this is one reason, you know, Really, anything after all things must pass. I'm not a huge fan of his 70s work. It's it's okay. You know, there's a lot of okay. Uh, and there's some great, too. Uh, his cover, Bye Bye Love, cover the Everly Brothers song, is good. Uh, I don't know the album that well. I like that they got his nickname from this album, and that's kind of cool. Um, then you have, and it's a very personal album. And it shows his love affair with 1950s music, just the way Lennon had, and all of them had, really. Uh, Extra Texture, 1975, read all about it in the subtitle, was the last original studio album released by Apple. After this, Apple became a a catalog, uh, uh, sorry, record company. They released, you know, previous recordings, et cetera, et cetera. The last brand new album released by any artist on Apple Records, very short run for, uh, you know, a record label. 1975's Extra Texture, read all about it. You is a good song. And uh, yeah, so again, I wish I had more enthusiasm. I've listened to all of their catalogs all the way through. And I want to hear from fans who, is George, George is their favorite solo artist you know, or Ringo or John or what have you, who disagree with me or even Paul, because I like to know why, I like to get more of a sense of what it is that attracts you to them. And I think part of it, and I do actually think this is a good thing, and it's similar to McCartney's first solo album, is that if you are almost deliberately being not super fully fleshed out and finished and polished, there is a sense of humanness to you and and approachability so that people who have that sense within them where they like music that is so vulnerable, it's, it's 
you know, in some ways not fully completed, then you could identify with an artist like that. And that totally makes sense to me. Uh, that That is me only in small percentages. 33 and a third, 1976. And I will say this. I love all of his album titles. Love them. I, I absolutely. They're all compelling. Uh, 1976. It was sort of a comeback, sort of like Lennon's sort of comeback, only after a couple of years and an album or two that wasn't that uh, big of a hit. Um, this song and Cracker Box Palace are two songs I like from that album. And I think overall, I remember liking the album in general and thought, oh, there's some perk in here. And then another three years pass and you get George Harrison, the eponymous album, uh, a strong album, a solid album worth listening to. Not Guilty is my favorite on there. And if we've been following history, we know that that was something that I believe was pitched during the like uh, Let It Be sessions or Get Back or Abbey Road or any of that and, and was not uh, either not finished at the time or not considered to be a Beatles thing. So he sat on it, releases it in 1979. It's a very good song, just a really good song. Uh, and then 1981, he releases some, well, let's go back to 79, George Harrison. There has been a dig at it that it was a bit adult contemporary. And this may be where the paths diverge as far as, you know, you can say what you want about all directions Lennon went in, but he went in all directions. You know, you can say what you want about the wild amount of directions that Paul has been in, but he went in all directions. Uh, George stayed in a couple of lanes, um, did at least one of them really well. And if one of your lanes is that kind of adult contemporary kind of Al Stewart kind of, you know, feel, I will probably like one or two songs, but it won't move me because it's just not my sound. Not that I, you know, think it's any greater or lesser. Somewhere in England in 1981, the song All Those Years Ago, which was a Beatles-Lennon tribute, nostalgia song, had the Beatles sound to it, and just a really, really good song. But overall, the album just doesn't seem focused. And it's partly, I think, because he was still really, at the time, heavily into movie production. He had started handmade films. He had helped the Python people do their things, both during and post-Python. In fact, his next album, Gone Tropo, or Tropo, in 1982... While he was still heavily into uh, the movie industry, Time Bandits came out that year, and the song Dream Away, which was the theme to that, was on Gone Trouble. And I remember liking the album better than what the you know critics said, and I think it's because he was settling into a groove that while it wasn't, again, my favorite groove in the world, at least seemed pretty you know solid and self-assured. And that song, Dream Away, is a good example of that. But critics didn't love it, neither did the people. So he took another break, this time five years. Certainly wouldn't be his longest. Uh, Cloud Nine comes out. Here we go. Boom. Now, this is one of my oldest CDs because I bought it when it came out. I was absolutely flipping crazy over this album when it came out because at the time, you know, for my, you know, coming of age and it being in that those years was probably the most significant Beatles solo album or the first most significant Beatles solo album for me and an absolutely huge comeback, just a monumental comeback. This is Love is a great song. When We Was Fab, great song. 
Got My Mind Set on You cover. Great cover. We've done that in the band. We've also done My Sweet Lord, I think one or two others. We do some of their solo works now and then. But just really reinvigorated his uh, music career in a public way and in, in every way. And that led him into, right after that, kicking off Traveling Wilburys uh, with, oh, geez, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, Jeff Lynn, and uh, Roy Orbison. I guess two of two of them are still alive, right? Jeff Lynn, Bob Dylan. They're not just worth mentioning, even though they're collaborative efforts. They have George written all over them, and it shows how he is always and had always been at his best when he was surrounded by talent and compelled to step up to that and less pressured to deliver on his own. He's like, I'm contributing here and I'm stepping up this song here and I'm writing this whole song here. And it just, you can feel the vibrancy. Volume one released in 1988, which I think I have on vinyl, Handle with Care and End of the Line. Volume two, volume three, sorry, in 1990, even though it was their second album. Funny. She's My Baby and Inside Out. And I really think that these albums contain some of his best post-Beatles work. I really do. And then we get another break. If you want to count Wilbury's, it's a 12-year break. If you just want to count his own work, it's a 15-year break. I don't know what was going on at the time. I know a lot of it was anthology-related and and passive-aggressive stuff going on as far as hot and cold on his own work and career and wanting to just, you know, I guess enjoy life maybe. Who knows? You get this album. Brainwashed. It's as beautiful as the packaging. I was recording an album at the time that he died, which was shortly after 9-11. And remember being devastated, although we saw it coming. And then the album comes out uh, the following year in 02. And it's beautiful. It is. It really probably ranks to me top three, maybe top two of George albums. Uh, and it honestly might be his second best overall album uh, behind All Things Must Pass. Must Pass. Uh, Any Road, I love that song. Brainwash is great. Uh, the, Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea is just a sublime cover, and you can hear him so well in that, and the fun he's having. And really the whole album is him just kind of saying, this is me, I'm letting go, I'm just enjoying doing the music. And you kind of wish that all the inner struggles that he had had ended sooner because the energy that he had on this album would have carried him through so many more albums prior to that. And that, and that song in particular between the devil and deep blue sea was, I think the one on the album that made me tear up because even though it's a cover, you just, you don't understand how, how George it is and how, you know, how much of himself is in there. Which, uh, let me show you this then. For those of you just listening, I'm showing people George Harrison, Let It Roll, which is a, you know, hits compilation. I enjoyed this. The There's a there's a nice booklet in here, which is crackling because it was a, another victim of the flood we had in 2021. But still decent, uh, worth looking up. Which brings me to number three as far as number of releases, and that's Ringo. Released 20 albums starting in 1970. And then three recent EPs that, to me, amount to one album. So it's almost like 21. I characterize him as somebody who was just doing what he wanted, just wanting to be involved in music, just wanting to be involved in recording and and bands. 
aiming to please. His love of music was paramount. Um, he's always, not always, that's not true. He's gone through a lot of ups and downs and, you know, alcohol and all of that stuff and personal things, but has really grown to be this, you know, letting out his hippie-ishness. Uh, to me, as far as lyrically, it borders a little bit on uh, foregone conclusion slash preachy, which I like what Bono said in his book and I think in interviews that he likes songs that are kind of chiaroscuro, that question things, that have the darkness with the light, that makes both of them stronger, you know? Uh, I love that he, he always, uh, Ringo always injects humor into work he's doing at every, le- you know, at every stage of his career. But again, it's best, I think his work has been best when he's let in a little bit of doubt and darkness because it makes the, the you know, brightness shine even more. Discography, again, starting in 1970, you get Sentimental Journey, uh, and which to me is in many ways the real Ringo and almost to me characterizes all the rest of his career subsequent to the mid-70s. Even though it's covers, the way the covers were done, it's sentimentality. I mean, the, the you know, perfect um, title for the album uh, covers you know, some sentimental journey, Bye Bye Blackbird. Uh, it seems to me kind of lackadaisical in, in, in a lot of the ways his recordings can be. What's interesting, though, is only one of four full albums from the solo Beatles that was produced by George Martin. George would go on to, you know, produce songs here and there and other things, uh, but no full albums other than this one and then three of um, McCartney's in the 80s. But then you get, in the same year, Boku of Blues, 1970. It's a very country, bluesy kind of album, and it's such an... This is where his kind of laid-back, easygoingness, it just fits perfectly. It fits his style. It fits his his, uh, vocals vocal range uh and country was always a big love of his and when you think of his cover of act naturally you think of even octopus's garden which has a country tinge to it this is a very 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 strong album followed in 1971 by it don't come easy uh which is just a song and it was i think his best solo song his best non-album single was uh you know it don't come easy i love that song 1972 was his next album, Back Off Boogaloo. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Jeez, I got to read my notes. That's another single. In 1972, Back Off Boogaloo, great song. I actually really love that song, and it showed his kind of, um, you know, willingness to be uh, slightly punchy and clever and wry and all of that stuff. And I think it was a John Lennon uh, creation or co-creation. So that means that his next album following Boku of Blues didn't really come out until 1973, and it was called Ringo. And this, to me, is what starts, or is, you know, if you count Boku of Blues, it's right in the middle of, but definitely starts his strongest period, album-wise. You have the song I'm the Greatest, which was a Lennon song. Photograph. I mean, you can't beat Photograph. Oh My My. Step Lightly, which would show up on, later on another album as well. And one of my favorite albums of his uh, along with Goodnight Vienna in 1974, also very strong. And I think that that was also, uh, I want to say that was another John Lennon co-creation, Goodnight, the, the title track, showing more of his kind of quirky, funny, weird side. Uh, Snookaroo, 
I, I always love that song. And I think it was on a hits album that I had. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's right here. Photograph the very best of Ringo. I think it's on this one. And the reason I bring it up is because I got that in 2010. It was his 70th birthday. And uh, that year I'd taken a couple of my kids to see him live. And Paul showed up for the song Birthday, of course. Uh, and I think maybe one other song. And this was at Radio City. So uh, that song and No, 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 also from Goodnight Vienna. Those are those are two of my personal favorites. No, No, No is a, that, that's a funny song. And it's a song I've pitched the band to cover because I it's one of those like, People just have fun with it, even if they're not sure what it is. Then 1976, uh, Ringo's Rotogravure, uh, which I know I pronounced incorrectly. Uh, it's the last album of any to feature all four Beatles. Not together, but, you know, on, on the same album. And is a real overall, a real all-star with two R's. Contribution, like all of his albums have been, you know, which brings up a question I'm going to ask later. But uh, also a decent album. Uh, so it's up to 76. Good stuff, you know. And of course, he was doing acting and other stuff in, in the world and hanging out with, you know, Keith Moon and, and people like that. Ringo the Fourth in 1977 was him wanting to pivot like so many artists did in this period. And it was kind of a disco album. And even though, you know, it's it's panned and you can understand it's not as strong as his early mid-70s work. I like it because I love listening to artists of that period pivot to disco, whether it's, you know, Chicago or Kiss and so many others because of its awkwardness. And I think in context, it probably did really suck. Uh, Although, you know, Good Night Tonight from McCartney, great song. And that's a disco song. Um, But out of context, in hindsight, it's kind of kitschy and quirky and interesting, you know, as so many of those albums are. Bad Boy in 1978, I have to imagine this is when he was just so heavily dealing with alcohol and stuff like that, because many people say this was like, you know, if not the one before, which was disco, which often at that time spelled the end of a band's career or their phase of their career. They they say Bad Boy was like the beginning of his just total freefall. Uh, and he, then he took a break, 1970, uh, 1978 that was, in 1981... Stop and Smell the Roses. So, you know, it's like when I did the uh, James Taylor at the beginning of this season and showed how he was dealing with, uh, you know, substance abuse as well. And in the 80s started to uh, inject more uh, optimism into his work, which led to uh, just a resurgence in his career as far as his songs getting just deeper and more personal in many ways. But for, for, uh, you know, Ringo... I think what it did was start to slowly suck the darkness out of any of his work. And maybe that's how he needed to cope with it. And he prefers to just be Mr. Sunshine positive and everything. But I think it it then means that a lot of the stuff that happened after the mid seventies was lacking for that reason. And that's, that's, you know, again, it's a personal decision. This album, however, was a bit better than bad boy. And the song rack my brain by Harrison is just one of the best, I think of his solo career. In 1983, you get Old Wave. So clearly, this is somebody who's been around, who's trying to either make a making a passive-aggressive joke and dig at the new wave, which happened in the late 70s, early 80s, and 
Had the album been amazing, you'd have to give them, you know, uh, an applause. It's like Glass House is still rock and roll to me. And, you know, Billy Joel mentions New Wave and all that stuff. But that's a great song and a great album. So you got to give them props. Sadly, this album ended his the first run of his solo career. So it wasn't a great album. Uh, he would take quite a break after this. Uh, in fact, that was 83. His next album wouldn't come out in 19, until 1992. During, in between, he started Ringo's All-Star Band and kind of re-energized his wanting to perform live and perform with great people in a great band and has had many iterations of that band for almost 35 years. So, you know... And he did Shining Time Station with Thomas the Tank Engine and all that stuff. Like really kind of getting to a place where he's stable and feeling good about life and all that stuff. And Time Takes Time in 1992 was a big comeback for Ringo. Maybe not as big as Cloud Nine or Double Fantasy, but pretty darn big. Big enough that it was critically acclaimed. Uh, The Weight of the World is a good song, I think. And then he goes on and takes a six-year break. And I and then Vertical Man and and here so I have this album Vertical Man because I remember liking and that he was back in action and thinking well hasn't had an album in a while let me get this and here's what gets me about this and it's a perfect thing Vertical Man to me is the beginning of the whole rest of his life in that it's good it's just good it's it's serviceable there's some small moments of yes good ah oh, I'm hearing something and energy but a lot of shrug there's a cover of love me do on that album which i can't stand but george and paul are both on this album because they had just finished the anthology work so it's kind of cool they're both in there and i like the sound of the album even though i don't i want to i don't know if jeff lynn produced it i'm not a big fan of his as a producer but who knows 99 didn't know this album existed i want to be santa claus and i'm always willing like with the disco thing to explore an artist's you know, venture into Christmas music because chances are there's at least one song that's that's good enough that's going to go on my massive playlist. And that one would be his version of Christmas Time is Here Again, which was a Beatles bonus song for fans only in the 60s that they never actually recorded. They just kind of sang into the mic or whatever. He finally recorded it. And I'm so glad he did, even though it's not the perfect version of it because it's not all the Beatles. I still like that it's it was finally laid down. Ringo Rama came four years later in 2003. So a lot of breaks. Same same thing. Never Without You is a good song. It may even border on very good, but, mm, you know, album. Choose Love, 2005. The, the, the title itself just shows you why I, I don't fully jive with what Ringo does as a solo artist. As much as I do agree with that and the whole peace and love, I I absolutely agree with it. For that to be the main and often sole message that you're putting through your music, it really, I don't think it drives the point home in the way that you want it to, you know, because it has a bit of a foregone conclusion, preaching this kind of thing. I can't understand why someone of his stature doesn't just find people who can write better songs. I mean... There have been like pops, I said, at flashes of goodness. And I know he likes to be intimately involved and likes to write his own music and songs and all that stuff, as he always has, really. But then 
put the rest of make the rest of the albums, you know, from people you you have access to amazing songwriters. Even if Paul doesn't want to write a song for you every damn album or whatever it is, so many amazing songwriters. I don't get it. Liverpool 8 in 2008, a bit better, but eh. Why not as the last one of his I bought on CD? I remember liking this again because that's the year we saw him in concert and I played it for the kids. Title track is okay. Walk With You with McCartney is decent. But like I said, I think I like it more than the critics do because it's just sentimental value. Ringo 2012, I'm not going to tell you what year that was released in. Uh, Think It Over, very decent cover. Step Lightly and Wings, a redo of older songs of his, also decent. And the song, the album itself, decent. Postcards from Paradise 2015, I don't remember that album. 2017, Give Me More Love, slightly stronger than Postcards, but I also don't really remember it. What's my name in 2019? I was kind of excited for it because I thought he's 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 punching it in. Dave Stewart from uh, Eurythmics, been working with him for a while. I think Colin Hay from uh, Men at Work. Uh, and but but that but it you get the hopes up for any Beatle release, and then you're like, I don't understand how detached you must be from you know the variety and breadth and depth of music creation as it is and has been to have so many just in, just insanely cheesy lyrics. But I love the spirit, and I think that's why people love him, because he has such an amazing spirit, and he's an amazing drummer, and you love his voice no matter what, and he's comforting, you know. And then in 2021, 2022, he released three EPs, Zoom In, Change the World, and EP3, which I took in, and I liked some of the production values and a couple of the songs. I think the last one is the strongest of the three. But I couldn't tell you what any of the songs' names are other than, I guess, a couple of the title tracks or how they sound. Which brings me to person number four. And if you're watching the clock, you'll get why I've had some surprises in store. I'm going to take a very vocal drink for you listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah. All right. Paul, 26 solo albums, 19 with himself. And seven with wings. That doesn't count side projects like uh, one-off collaborative singles with people like, you know, Stevie and Michael Jackson, Kanye and Rihanna more recently, and so many others. Doesn't count as orchestral works. It doesn't count Liverpool Sound Collage, uh, The Fireman. I forget which one, Electric Arguments. I don't remember. But he's more prolific and one of the most prolific people, I think. Uh, and most consistent people, and certainly the most consistent Beatle, regardless of how long, you know, even if his career had been short, still more consistent than any of the others. No long breaks. He's someone who I think was proving to himself that he was still good and still worthy and proved it to the world, certainly in spades. He, You can tell he's having fun with everything he does, no matter what type of song it is. He's always been observationally said that before. He likes to write third-person songs and songs that aren't about him personally, although he's done some personal stuff. Sometimes his music goes on to the saccharine level, but that's what Silly Love Songs is about, and so he owns it, and I like how he owns it. Paul, to me, is the Stones of the Beatles. Does that make sense? Yes. Why? Because he's always working. He's always performing. He's always putting out new music. He's he is a journeyman. He's he's you know veteran longevity. Nothing stops him. Same way the Stones, right? So discography. Pause. No. 
And I'll tell you why. I can't do his discography because uh, it's too long. And if I started it now, this this would be another hour, this episode. So I've decided two things. One is, this six-part series is not going to be six parts. I'm going to include a full episode on McCartney's solo work. And two is, I want to talk about Beatles bands, bands and artists that were influenced by the Beatles, including, hell, Prince, you know, in his like around the world in the day and period and all that, if not more. And that to me warrants another separate episode. So it's not six parts. It's eight. It may be more. If you include the previous episodes on books and John Lennon and and other things, it's even more than that. I'm not going to mention anything about Paul's solo work. I don't even have it here in my diorama because it's just too much. So let's get to the last things, which are conclusions. Uh, the, the, you know, I talked about the, yeah, I'm not going to talk about the Beatles legacy. Boy, oh boy. I have to do that in another, another episode or even bands that tried to be as big as the Beatles or other artists that were came close to being as big as the Beatles, but why no one has really been able to replicate what they did. Another episode for that. Conclusions. Of course, of course, none of their solo music could, could fully live up to the wholeness of the Beatles. Cause that's why I say separating the sum, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, but some of it equaled some of the Beatles' work, and a lot of it came really close in a, in a way that if the Beatles never existed and it was just their solo work, they would still be superstars, you know? And there's so much of it from all of them is worthy uh, to varying degrees. We can't fully separate the sadness of their never reuniting and of the Beatles not existing anymore, which is what makes it hard for some people to judge objectively their solo work and i completely understand that something that came to me last night uh that is that the reason i think one reason why and this is true for so many artists is why collaboration is so important is that they they as solo artists they sometimes would seek out somebody to collaborate with or check them or whatever but they generally didn't have to answer to anybody and you could tell they lacked that indulgence check that each other gave them when they were in the band. They lacked the bullshit detector that never lets somebody go too far into their own hole. Where, oh, I'm going to, you know, it's getting better all the time. Can't get no worse. You know, a perfect example. That's such a collaboration there. And so they were free to indulge as much as they want and explore, which I think as an artist you have to do, but it doesn't necessarily bring out your best work. Uh, you know, Paul would would dig down more into sentimentality, but he was somebody who I think of the four self-checked more than anybody, which is why he's been in so many directions. And I model a part of my career after what he's done because he doesn't stay in one lane. And he's like, oh, I've done a little too much of this. I'm going to do this instead, you know, and that's the best you can do when you don't have somebody like John at your side. John would veer more towards raw and unfinished on purpose. And some of that was very compelling, but he eventually came back around to wanting being fully fleshed out, like on Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey. George to a lack of focus and discipline and completion, although he, you know, certainly came to some of those things on his own and came back around. And Ringo to not really pushing any envelope. You know, his strength has been live and it is. And not having the best material chosen for him after the mid seventies. So these are the things that they did while they were in the Beatles of each other. But to, again, taken separately, each of their careers is worthy of standing alone and being assessed apart from the uh, Beatles. It really is. Yes. My favorite will always be Paul. 
but my my I, I wouldn't be complete without having listened to all of their solo works. And I know there are people who love John over everything and love his solo work and and George and, and all that. I, I if you're a Ringo is the best solo person fan, please contact me because I want to take a picture of you. Uh, the fact that we still have two of them in our lives and that both of them continue to perform live and continue to release new music and do interviews and write books and all of that stuff is a gift. They're in their 80s. We have to appreciate it while we still have it. I heard, uh, let's say it was Brian Hyatt on Rolling Stone podcast say, in the next 10, 15 years, all the people that we've revered as icons, whether you're talking about the Stones or or you know just anybody, we're all going to be either not working anymore or dead. And we just have to accept that fact. So let's appreciate this while we have it. Which brings me, of course, to the last and all important section of this mega sixth episode. And that is the song I've chosen to spotlight. I could have chosen a dozen or two dozen or three dozen because everything I've done has been influenced by the Beatles. Even that song, weird song, Move Ahead Long Boy, was a, was a kind of a Beatles rip in a lot of ways. I like long outros, layered outros. I like harmonies. I like deceptively simple chord progressions. I like slightly trippy things and, and uh, you know, production arrangement that, that keeps giving the more you listen to it, little hidden Easter eggs and stuff like that. I like to be introspective yet accessible. You know, I like to have that artistic bent yet still try to get the message across to people. I like a willingness to explore and to not stay in one lane. All of these things the Beatles did, uh, you know, uh, together and many as solo artists. I could have chosen What I Want, Lost, Found, Scroll Out, Regular Day, One Minute, Shy of Forever, which I almost chose, Everlast, and others that I have showcased already, which I try not to do uh, twice. But I've decided to choose a song called Different Oceans, which was from uh, Distance to Empty, Rex uh, 2013 EP, and is also on Rec Collection, the best of Rec 2007 to 2020, which means it's streaming everywhere. And that's the remastered version. So I recommend that. And you can hear everything I just mentioned up there in that song. The light and the darkness, the, the you know, breadth and depth and, and the long outro and all of those things you can hear in the song, which you're going to hear in the next 30 seconds. Are you into any of the Beatles solo music? If so, who's your favorite? Are you old enough to remember hoping that they would get back together and what it felt like when you knew they couldn't ever again? Do you feel that they deserve the praise and legendary status either as a full band or as solo artists at all? And why? Can you think of examples of how their influence has spawned not only other bands, but other full genres? I want to know all the answers to all these questions because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you so much for hanging with me for this not last part of my six-part Beatles series, and I'll talk to you next week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.